Chapter Eight of The Worm Ouroboros. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jason Mills. The Worm Ouroboros by E. R. Edison. Chapter Eight. The First Expedition to Impland. Of the homecoming of the demons, and how Lord Juss was taught in a dream whither he must seek for tidings of his dear brother, and how they took counsel at Crothering, and determined of their expedition to Impland. Midsummer night, Ambrosial, starry-curtled, walked on the sea, as the ship that brought the demons home drew nigh to her journey's end. The cloaks of Lord Juss and Lord Brandock de Haar, who slept on the poop, were wet with dew. Smoothly they had passage through that charmed night, where winds were hushed asleep, and naught was heard, save the waves talking beneath the bows of the ship, the lilting, changeless song of the steersman, and the creak, dip, and swash of oars keeping time to his singing. Vega burned like a sapphire near the zenith, and Arcturus low in the northwest, beaconing over demonland. In the remote southeast, Fommelhort rose from the sea, a lonely splendour in the dim region of Capricorn and the fishes. So rode there till day broke, and a light wind sprang up fresh and keen. Just waked, and stood up to scan the grey glassy surface of the sea, spread to vast distances where sky and water faded into one. Astern, great clouds bridged the gates of day, boiling upwards into crags of wine-dark vapour, and burning plumes of sunrise. In the stainless spaces of the sky above these sailed the horned moon, frail and wan as a white foam-flower blown from the waves. Westward, facing the thunder-smoke of dawn, the fine far ridge of Cartadzo was like cut crystal against the sky the first island sentinel of many mountain demon-land, his topmost cliffs dawn-illumined with pale gold and amethyst, while yet the lesser heights lay obscure, lapped in the folds of night. And with the opening day the mists swathing the mountain's skirts were lifted up in billowy masses that grew and shrank and grew again, made restless by the wayward winds which morning waked in the hollow mountainside, and torn by them into wisps and streamers. Some were blown upward, steaming up the great gullies in the rocks below the peak, while now and then a puff of cloud swam free for a minute, floated a minute's space as ready to sail skyward, then indolently stooped again to the mountain wall, to veil it in an unsubstantial fleece of golden vapour. And now all the western seaboard of Demonland lay clear to view, stretching fifty miles and more, from North House Skerries, past the Drake Holmes and the low downs of Kesterwick and Byland, beyond which tower the mountains of the Scarf, past the jagged skyline of the Thornbacks, and the far Neverdale peaks overhanging the wooded shores of Onward Lithe and lower Tiverandadale, to the extreme southern headland, filmy pale in the distance, where the great range of Rimon Armon plunges its last wild bastion in the sea. As a lover gazing on his mistress, so gazed Lord Juss on Demonland rising from the sea. No word spake he till they came off looking Haven Ness, and could see where beyond the beaked promontory the sound opened between Cartadza and the mainland. Albeit the outer sea was calm, the air in the sound was thick with spray, from the churning of the waters among the reefs and swallowing shoals. For the tide ran like a mill-race through that sound, and the roaring of it was plain to hear at two miles' distance where they sailed. Just said, Mindest thou my shepherding of the ghoul-fleet into yonder jaws? I would not tell thee for shame when as the fit was on me, but this is the first day since the sending came upon us, that I have not wished in my heart that the races of Cartadza had gulped me down also and given me one ending with the accursed ghouls. Lord Brandock de Haar looked swiftly upon him, and was silent. 
Now in a short while was the ship coming to looking haven, and alongside of the marble quay. There amid his folk stood Spitfire, who greeted them, saying, I made all ready to bring three of you home in triumph from your ship, but Vol counselled against it. Glad am I that I took his counsel, and put by those things I had prepared. They had cut me to the heart to see them now. Just answered him, O oh, my brother, this noise of hammers in looking haven, and these ten keels laid on the slips, show me ye have been busied on things nearer our needs than bay leaves and the instruments of joy since thou camest home. So they took horse, and while they rode, related to Spitfire all that had befallen since their faring to Carsey. In such wise came they north past the harbour, and saw over Havershore Tongue to Beckfoot, where they took the upper paths that climb into Evendale, close under the screes of Starksty Pike, and so came a little before noon to Gaeling. The black rock of Gaeling stands at the end of the spur that runs down from the south ridge of Little Drakeholm, dividing Brankdale from Evendale. On three sides the cliffs fall sheer from the castle walls to the deep woods of oak and birch and rowan tree, which carpet the flats of Moongarth Bottom, and feather the walls of the gill through which the Brankdale Beck plunges in waterfall after waterfall. Only on the north-east may aught save a winged thing come at the castle, across a smooth grass-grown saddle less than a stone's throw in width. Over that saddle runs the paven way, leading from the Brankdale Road to the Lion Gate, and within the gate is that garden of the grass-walk between the yews, where Lessingham stood with the martlet nine weeks before, when first he came to Demonland. When night fell and supper was done, Just walked alone on the walls of his castle, watching the constellations burn in the moonless sky above the mighty shadows of the mountains, listening to the hooting of the owls in the woods below, and the faint distant tinkle of cow-bells, and breathing the fragrance borne up from the garden on the night wind, that even in high summer tasted keen of the mountains and the sea. These sights and scents and voices of the holy night so held him in thrall that it wanted but an hour of midnight when he left the battlements, and called the sleepy house-carls to light him to his chamber in the south tower of Gaeling. Wondrous fair was the great four-posted bed of the Lord Juss, builded of solid gold, and hung with curtains of dark blue tapestry, whereon were figured sleep-flowers. The canopy above the bed was a mosaic of tiny stones, jet, serpentine, dark hyacinth, black marble, bloodstone and lapis lazuli, so confounded in a maze of altering hue and lustre, that they might mock the palpitating sky of night. And therein was the likeness of the constellation of Orion, held by just the guardian of his fortunes, the stars whereof, like those beneath the golden canopy in the presence chamber, were jewels shining of their own light, yet dead wood glimmering in the dark. For Betelgeuse was a ruby shining, and a diamond for Regal, and pale topazes for the other stars. The four posts of the bed were of the thickness of a man's arm in their upper parts, but their lower parts great as his waist, and carven in the image of birds and beasts. At the foot of the bed a lion for courage, and an owl for wisdom, and at the head an alaunt for faithfulness of heart, and a kingfisher for happiness. On the cornice of the bed, and on the panels above the pillow against the wall, were carved Juss's deeds of daring do, and the latest carving was of the sea-fight with the ghouls. To the right of the bed stood a table, with old books of songs, and books of the stars, and of herbs, and beasts, and travellers' tales, and there was Juss wont to lay his sword beside him while he slept. All the walls were panelled with dark, sweet-smelling wood, and armour and weapons hung thereon. Mighty chests and almaries, hasped and bound with gold, stood against the wall, wherein he kept his rich apparel. Windows opened to the west and south, and on each window-ledge stood a bowl of palest jade, filled with white roses, and the air entering the bedchamber was laden with their scent. 
About Cockcrow came a dream unto Lord Juss, standing by his head and touching his eyes, so that he seemed to wake and look about the chamber. And he seemed to behold an evil beast, all burning as a drake, busy in his chamber, with many heads, the most venomous that ever he the days of his life had seen, and about it its five fawns, like to itself but smaller. It seemed to Juss that in place of his sword there lay a great spear of fair workmanship on the table by his bed, and it seemed to him in his dream that this spear had been his all his life, and was his greatest treasure, and that with it he might accomplish all things, and without it scarcely aught to his mind. He laboured to reach out his hand to the spear, but some power withheld him, so that for all his striving he might not stir. But that beast took up the spear in its jaws, and went with it forth from the chamber. It seemed to just that the power that held him departed with the departing of the beast, so that he leapt up and snatched down weapons from the wall, and made an onslaught on the fawns of that fell beast, that were tearing down the woven hangings, and mooring with their fiery breath the figure of the kingfisher at the head of his bed. All the chamber was full of the reek of burning, and he thought his friends were with him in the chamber, Vol and Viz, and Zig and Spitfire and Brandok de Haar, fighting with the beasts, and the beasts prevailed against them. Then it seemed to him that the bedpost carven in the likeness of an owl spake to him, in his dream, in human speech. And the owl said, O fool, that shalt justly be put in great misery without end, except thou bring back the spear. Hast thou forgot that this only is thy greatest treasure, and most worthy is thy care? Therewith came back that grim and grisful beast into the chamber, and just assailed it, crying to the owl, Uncivil owl, where then must I find my spear that this beast hath hidden? And it seemed to him that the owl made answer, Inquire in Kostra Belorn. So tumultuous was Lord Juss's dream, that he was flung at waking out of bed onto the deerskin carpets of the floor, and his right hand clutched the hilt of his great sword where it lay on the table by his bed, whereas in his dream he had beheld the spear. Mightily moved was he, and forthwith clothed himself, and faring through the dim corridors came to Spitfire's chamber, and sat on the bed and waked him, and just told him his dream, and said, I hold myself clean of all blame hereabout, for from that day forth this only hath been my care how to find my dear brother and fetch him home, and only then to wreak myself on the witches. And what was this spear in my dream, if not Goldry? This vision of the night kindleth for us a beacon-fire we needs must seek to. It bade me inquire in Kostra Belorn, and till that be done never will I rest, nor so much as think on aught besides. Spitfire answered and said, Thou beest our oldest brother, and I shall follow and obey thee in all that thou wilt do, or shalt ordain hereof. Then fared just to the guest-chamber, where Lord Brandock de Haar lay a-sleeping, and waked him and told him all. Brandock de Haar snuggled him under the bedclothes, and said, Let me be, and let me sleep yet two hours. Then will I rise and bathe and array myself and eat my morning meal, and thereafter will I take reed with thee, and tell thee somewhat for thine advantage. I have not slept in a goose-feather bed and sheets of lawn these many weeks. If thou plague me now, by God I will incontinently take horse over the stile to Crothering, and let thee and thine affairs go to the devil. So just laughed and left him in peace. And later, when they had eaten, they walked in a plashed alley, where the air was cool and the purple shadow on the path was dappled with bright flecks of sunshine. Lord Brandock de Haar said, Thou knowest that Kostra Belorn is a great mountain, beside which our mountains of Demonland would seem but little hills unremarked, and that it standeth in the uttermost parts of earth, beyond the wastes of Upper Impland, and thou mightest search a year through all the peopled countries of the world, and not find one living soul, who had so much as beheld it from afar. "'This much I know,' said Lord Juss. 
Is thine heart utterly bent on this journey? said Brandogahar. Or is it not preposterous, and a thing to comfort our enemies, that we should thus at the bidding of a dream fly to far and perilous lands, rather than pay which land presently for the shame he hath done us? Just answered him, My bed is hallowed by spells of such a virtue that no naughty dream flown through the ivory gate, nor no noisome wizardry hath power to trouble his sleep who sleepeth there. This dream is true. For which land there is time enow? If thou wilt not go with me to Costa Bellone, I must go without thee. Enough, said Lord Brandock de Haar. Thou knowest for thee I tie my purse with the spider's thread. Then fare we must to Impland, and herein may I help thee. For listen while I tell thee a thing. When as I slew Garice the tenth in Goblinland, Gaslight gave me, along with other good gifts, a great curiosity, a treatise, or book, copied out on parchment by Borian, his secretary, wherein it speaketh of all the ways to Impland, and what countries and kingdoms lie next to the Maruna, and the fronts thereof, and the marvels that he found in those lands. And all that is written in this book was set down faithfully by Borian after the telling of Gro, the same which now hath part with the Witchlanders. Great honour had Gro, as then, from Gaslark, for his far journeyings, and for that which is written in this book of wonders. And this it was that had first put in Gaslark's mind to send that expedition into Impland, which so reduced him, and came so wretchedly to naught. If then thou wilt seek to Costra Bellone, come home with me to-day, and I will show thee my book. So spake Lord Brandock de Haar, and Lord just straightway ordered forth the horses, and sent messengers to Vol under Cartadza, and to visit Dark Lairstead, bidding them meet him at Crothering with what speed they might. It was four hours before noon when Juss, Spitfire, and Brandock de Haar rode down from Gailing and through the woods of Moongarth Bottom at the foot of the lake, taking the main bridle-road up Breakingdale that runs by the western margin of Moonmere under the buttresses of the scarf. They rode slowly, for the sun was strong on their back. Glassy was the lake and like a turquoise, and the birch-clad slopes to the east and north, and the bare rugged ridges of Stathfell and Budrafell beyond, were mirrored in its depths. On the left as they rode, the spurs of the scarf impended from on high in piled bastions of black porphyry, like giants' castles, and little valleys choked with monstrous boulders, among which the silver birches crowding showed like tiny garden plants, ran steeply back between the spurs. Up those valleys appeared successively the main summits of the scarf, savage and remote, frowning downward as it were between their own knees, glomery pike, mickle scarf, and ill stack. By noon they had climbed to the extreme head of Breakingdale, and halted on the stile, a little beyond the watershed under the sheer northern wall of Ildrenach. Before them the pass plunged steeply into Armadadale. The lower reach of Switchwater shone fifteen miles or more to the west, well nigh hidden in the heat hairs. Nearer at hand in the northwest lay Ramerick Mere, bosomed among the smooth-backed Kellyaland hills, and the easternmost uplands of Shalgreth Heath, with the sea beyond. And on the valley floor, near the waters meet where Transdale runs into Armadadale, it was possible to descry the roof of Zig's house at many bushes, when they came down thither, Zig was out a-hunting. So they left word with his lady-wife, and drank a stirrup-cup, and rode on, up Switchwater Way, and for twelve miles or more along the southern shore of Switchwater. So dropped they into Gashtondale, and then surrounding the western slopes of Urngate End, came upon the Crothering side, when the shadows were lengthening in the golden summer evening. The side ran gently west for a league or more, to where Thunderfirth lay like beaten gold beneath the sun. Across the Firth, the pine forests of Westmark, old as the world, rose toward Broxty Edge and Gemsaw Edge, a far-flung amphitheatre of bare cliff and scree shutting in the prospect to the north. High on the left towered the precipices of Urngate End. 
Southward and southeastward lay the sea. So rode they down the side, through deep peaceful meadows, fair with white ox-eye daisies, bluebells and yellow goat's-beard and sea-campion, deep blue gentians, agrimony and wild marjoram, and pink clover and bindweed and great yellow buttercups feasting on the sun. And on an eminence beyond which the land fell away more steeply toward the sea, the onyx towers of Crothering, standing above woods and gardens, showed milk-white against heaven and the clear hyaline. When they were now but half a mile from the castle, just said, Behold and see! The Lady Mevrian hath espied us from afar, and rideth forth to bring thee home. Brandock de Haar cantered ahead to meet her, a lady light of build and exceeding fair to look upon, brave of carriage like a war-horse, soft of feature, clear-browed, grey-eyed and proud-eyed, sweet-mouthed, but not as one who can speak no but sweetness. Her robe was of pale buff-coloured silk, with corsage covered as by a spider's web with fine golden threads, and she wore a point-lace ruffle stiffened with gold and silver wire, and spangled with little diamonds. Her deep hair, black as the raven's wing, was fastened with pins of gold, and a yellow rose that nestled in its coils was as the moon looking forth among thick clouds of night. "'Doings be afoot, my lady sister,' said Lord Brandock de Haar. "'One king of which land have we done down since we sailed hence, and guested in Carsey with another, little to our content. All which things I'll tell thee anon. Now lieth our road south for Impland, and Crothering is but our caravanserai, she turned her horse, and they rode all in company into the shadow of the ancient cedars that clustered to the north of the home-meads and pleasure-gardens, stately, gaunt-limbed, flat-browed, bleak against the sky. On the left a lily-paven lake slept cool beneath mighty elms, with a black swan near the bank, and her four signets dozing in a row, their heads tucked beneath their wings, so that they looked like balls of grey-brown froth floating on the water. The path leading to the bridge-gate zigzagged steeply up the mound, between low broad balustrades of white onyx, bearing at intervals square onyx pots, planted some with yellow roses, and some with wondrous flowers, great and delicate, with frail white shell-like petals. Deep mysterious centres had those flowers, thick with soft hairs within, and dark within with velvety purple, streaked with black and blood-colour and dust of gold. The castle of Lord Brandock de Haar, standing at the top of the mound, was circled by a ditch both broad and deep, the gate before the drawbridge was of iron, gilded and richly wrought. The towers and gatehouse were of white onyx like the castle itself, and on either hand before the gate was a colossal marble hippogriff, standing more than thirty feet high at the withers. And the wings and hooves and talons of the hippogriffs and their manes and forelocks were overlaid with gold, and their eyes carbuncles of purest lustre. Over the gate was written in letters of gold, Ye braggers and awe, biscuit and awar, frae brandock but to tell even a tenth part of the marbles rich and beautiful that were in the house of Crothering, its cool courts and colonnades rich with gems and fragrant with costly spices and strange blooms, its bedchambers where, caught like Aphrodite in her golden net, the spirit of sleep seemed ever to shake slumber from its plumes, and none might be waking long in those chambers but sweet sleep overcame their eyelids, the chamber of the sun and the chamber of the moon, and the great middle hall with its high gallery and ivory stair, to tell of all these were but to cloy imagination, with picturing in one while of overmuch glory and splendour. Nought befell that night save the coming of Zig before sundown, and of those brethren Vol and Viz in the night, having ridden hard in obedience to the word of Jus. In the morning when they had eaten their day meal, the lords of Demonland went down into Pleasances, and with them the Lady Mevrian, and in an alley that was roofed with beams of cedar resting on marble pillars, the beams and pillars smothered with dark red roses, 
they sat looking eastward across a sunk garden. The weather was sweet and gracious, and thick dew lay on the pale terraced lawns that led down among flower beds to the fish pond in the midst. The water made a cool mirror whereon floated yellow and crimson water lilies opening to the sky. All the greens and flower colours glowed warm and clean, but soft withal and shadowy, veiled in the grey haze of the summer morning. They sat here and there as they listed, on chairs and benches, near a huge tank or vase of dark green jade, where sulphur-coloured lilies grew in languorous beauty, their back-curled petals showing the scarlet anthers, and all the air was heavy with their sweetness. The great jade vase was round and flat like the body of a tortoise, open at the top where the lilies grew. It was carved with scales, as it were the body of a dragon, and a dragon's head, agaping, reared itself at one end, and at the other the tail curved up and over, like the handle of a basket, and the tail had little fore and hind feet with claws, and a smaller head at the end of the tail gaped downwards, biting at the large head. Four legs supported the body, and each leg was a small dragon, standing on its hind feet, its head growing into the parent body, as the thigh or shoulder joint should join the trunk. In the curve of the creature's neck, his back propped against its head, sat the Lord Brandock de Haar, in graceful ease, one foot touching the ground, the other swinging free and in his hands was the book, bound in dark, puce-coloured goatskin and gold, given him by Gazlark in years gone by. Zig watched him idly turn the pages while the others talked. Leaning toward Mevrian, he whispered in her ear, Is not he able and shapen for to subdue and put under him all the world, thy brother, a man of blood and peril, and yet so fair to behold that it is a marvel? Her eyes danced. She said, It is pure truth, my lord. Now spake Spitfire, saying, Read forth to us, I pray thee, the book of Grow, for my soul is afire to set forth on this fairing. "'Tis writ somewhat crabbedly, said Brandock de Haar, and most damnably long. I spent half last night a-searching on't, and tis most apparent no other way lieth to these mountains save by the Marooner, and across the Marooner is, if Grow say true, but one way, and that from the Gulf of Muelva, a twenty days' journey from north by south-est. For here he telleth of water-springs by the way, but he saith in other parts of the desert be no water-springs, save only springs venomous, where the water reeketh like a seething pot continually, having somewhat a sulphurious and somewhat unpleasant savour. And the ground nourisheth here no plant nor herb, except it be venomous champinions or toadstools. If he say true, said Spitfire, he is a turncoat and a renegado, wherefore not therefore a liar? but a philosopher answered just i knew him well of old in goblin land and i judge him to be one who is not false save only in policy subtle of mind he is and dearly loveth plotting and scheming and as i think perversely affecteth ever the losing side if he be brought into any quarrel and this hath dragged him oft times to misfortune but in this book of his travels he must needs speak truth as it seemeth to me to be true to his own self the lady mevrian looked approvingly on lord just and her eye twinkled for well it liked her humour to hear men's nurtures so divined. "'O oh, just friend of my heart,' said Lord Brandock de Haar, "'thy words proceed as ever they did from the true fount of wisdom, "'and I embrace them and thee. "'This book is a guide which we shall follow not helter-skelter, "'but as old men of war. "'If then the right road to Morna Maruna lie from the Gulf of Muelva, "'were we not best sail straight thitherward, "'and lay up our ships in that gulf where the coast and countryside be without habitation, rather than fare to some nearer haven of outer implant such as all and mouth whither thou and spitfire fared six summers ago not all and mouth or this journey said just 
Some sport perchance we might obtain there, had we leisure for fighting with the accursed inhabitants. But every day's delay we now do, make holdeth my brother another day in bondage. The princes and phases of the imps have many strong-walled towns and towers in all those coastlands, and hard by in a mediamnis of the river Arlen, in Orpish, is the great castle of Faxfair Faz, whereto Goldry and I drove him home from Leda Nanguna. "'Tis an ill coast, too, to find a landing,' said Brandoctor Har, turning the leaves of the book. "'As he saith, Impland the moor beginneth at the west side of the mouth of Arlen, and occupieth all the land unto the headland Sibrion, and therefro south away to the Korsh, Bagessa seven hundred miles, whereby the sea is not there of nature favourable, nor no haven is, or coming in meat for ships. So after some talk and searching of that book of Grow, they determined this should be their plan, to fare to Impland by way of the Straits of Melikafkaz and the Didonian Sea, and so lay up their ships in the Gulf of Muelva, and landing there start straightway across the wilderness to Morna Maruna, even as Grow had described the way. Ere we leave it, said Brandoc de Haar, Hear what he speaketh concerning Kostra Belloin. This he beheld from Morna Maruna, whereof he saith, The country is hilly, sandy, and barren of wood, and come as forest full of ling moors and mosses, with stony hills. Here is a mighty strong and used burrow for flying serpents, in some barren heathy and sandy ground, and thereby the little round castle of Morna Maruna standeth on Ompren edge, as on the limit of the world, sore weather-beaten and in ruin. This castle was brent in time of war, spoiled and raised, by King Garais the fort of Witchland in ancient days. And they say there was blameless folk dwelled therein, and right gentle, nor was there any need for Garais to have used them so cruelly. But he caused the whole household there to appear before him, and then slow some out of hand, and the residue he throw all down the steep cliff. And but few supervivid after the great fall, and these fled away through the untrodden forests of Bavinon, and without question perished there in great sorrow and misery. Some fable that it was for this cruel fact's sake that King Garais was eat by devils on the Maruna, with all his host, one man only coming home again to tell of these things befallen. Now, Mark, from Morna Maruna I beheld south away two great mountains standing over Bavinin, as two queens in beauty seated in the sky, by estimation twenty leagues for a hence, above many more ice-robed mountains supereminent. The which, as I learned, was Koshter Bellon, the one, and the other Koshter Pivraka, and I viewed them continually unto the going down of the sun, and that was the fairest sight, and the most beautifulest, and gallant marvel, that mine iron hath seen. Therewith talked I with the small things that dwell there in the ruins and in the bushes growing round about, as it is my wont, and amongst them one of those birds called martlets, that have feet so little that they seem to have none. And this little martlet, sitting in a frambousier or raspis bush, told me that none may come alive unto Koshtra Belun, for the manticoras of the mountains will certainly eat his brains ere he come thither, and were he so fortunate as escape these manticoras, yet could he never climb up the great crags of ice and rock on Koshtra Belun, for none is so strong as to scale them but by art magical, and such is the virtue of that mountain that no magic availeth there, but only strength and wisdom alone and as I say, these would not avail to climb those cliffs and ice-rivers. "'What be these manticores of the mountains that eat men's brains?' asked the Lady Mevrian. "'This book is so excellent well writ,' said her brother, "'that thine answer appeareth on this same page. "'The beast manticora, which is as much as to say devourer of men, "'runneth, as I heard tell, on the skirt of the mountains below the snow-fells. "'These be monstrous beasts, 
ghastly and full of horror, enemies to mankind, of a red colour, with two rows of huge great teeth in their mouths. It hath the head of a man, his iron like a goot, and the body of a lion lancing out sharp prickles from behind, and his tail is the tail of a scorpion, and is more deliverer to go than is foul to flee, and his voice is as the roaring of ten lions. These beasts, said Spitfire, were alone enough to draw me thither. I shall bring thee home a small one, madam, to keep chained in the court. That should dash me from thy friendship for ever, cousin, said Mevrian, stroking the feathery ears of her little marmoset that cuddled in her lap. That which feedeth on brains were over-nourished in demon-land, and belike would overrun the whole countryside. Send it to witch-land, said Zig, where when it hath eat up grow and corund, it may sup lightly on the king, and then most fortunately starve for lack of its proper nutriment. Just stood up from his seat. Thou and I and Spitfire, said he to Brandok de Haar, must to work roundly and gather strength, for tis already midsummer. You, viz. Vol and Zig, must have the warding of our homes whilst we be gone. We cannot be less than two thousand swords on this fairing. How many ships, Vol, asked Lord Brandok de Haar, canst thou give us, busked and boon, ere this moon wane? There be fourteen afloat, said Vol. Besides these, ten keels lie on the slips at Luckinghaven, and nine more hath Spitfire but now laid down on the beach before his house at Owlswick. Thirty and three in some, said Spitfire. You see we have not twiddled our thumbs whilst you were gone. Just paced back and forth with great strides, his brow clouded and his jaw clenched. In a while he said, Laxus hath forty sail, dragons of war. I am not so idle-headed as fare without an army into Impland, but certain it is that if our ill-willers would move war against us, we stand in apparent weakness, here or abroad, to throw back their onset. Vol said, Of these nineteen ships of building, no more than two can take the water before a month be passed, and but seven more ere six months' time, push we never so mightily the work. The season weareth, and my brother wasteth in duress. We must sail ere another moon grow old, said Juss. Vol said, Then with sixteen sail thou sailest, or Juss, and then thou leavest us not one ship at home till more be finished and launched. "'How can we leave you so?' cried Spitfire. But Brandok de Haar looked towards his lady sister, met her glance, and was satisfied. "'The choice lieth fair before us,' said he. "'If we will eat the egg, little need to debate whether the shell must go.' Mevrian rose from her seat laughing, and said, "'Then let the council rise, my lords.' And her eyes grew serious, and she said, "'Shall they make rhymes upon us that we of Demonland, whom men repute and hold the mightiest lords in all the world, hung sheepishly back from this high needful enterprise, lest, our greatest captains being abroad, our enemies might haply take us home at disadvantage. It shall not be said of the women of Demonland that they upheld such counsels. End of chapter 8